If you want to work on a race team, you go for a freaking race team right now. If you want to do something specific in industry, go for it right now. Don't waste time because life is short. Take no prisoners, no mercy, because if it was easy, everyone would do it. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Hey ladies, it's time to put your badass boss babe hat on. Head over to femcanic.com's resource page and create your personal listing. And your business listing if you have one of those too. No cost to you at all. Just shameless self-promotion. Talent recruiters for jobs, radio, and TV gigs have leveraged this page to discover talent. Come on ladies. It's time to get your self-promotion on. Remember, femcanic.com, resource tab at the top, and click the Yes, I'm a Badass Woman. Angelia Alcantar is in the driver's seat today. She is a seasoned automotive instructor at Riverside City College. As an instructor, she teaches and researches what she loves. Prior to entering into the world of education, she spent eight years in the field as an automotive technician. She has worked in mom-and-pop shops, dealerships, hot rod and performance shops. Now let's sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Angelina Alcantar in the driver's seat today. And thank you for letting me pronounce your last name that way. We had a cool conversation around the technical way to pronounce it. And when Monica edits this, it's probably going to kick me in the shin because it is a Spanish name. And it's all about rolling the R's and enunciating those. She says I sound angry when I do it. So maybe I'm saving all of the listeners from thinking I'm an angry person. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm super glad to be on here and honored. So thank you for having me. No, it's my pleasure. We actually met at a rooftop event that Bogey and Tech Force hosted at SEMA two years ago now. Isn't that crazy? That was in 2019. It's like 2020 didn't even exist. It's like weird. The whole world stopped. It's like this lost year. But we chatted then. And after chatting with you, I'm like, man, she'd be really good on the show. So here we are. Fast forward 2021. And we're knocking on the door of SEMA and Apex opening back up. Are you going this year? That is my plan. Um, My school has been very supportive with sending me to SEMA over the past years. And it's been very fruitful for me and our program. Um, This year, obviously, everything's sort of coming back in new. But my plan is to go, um, whether it's official or unofficial. (laughs) I've been going to every SEMA for the last, geez, I don't know, at least 10 years. And I would feel horrible missing it if it was going on and I'm not there. 
I understand what you're saying. Like it's such a space of connection. You know what I mean? And we stay connected via social media and stuff now, but being able to be in person with each other and have those conversations and that kind of sisterhood is such a cool experience. Now, as I do with all of my guests, and it fascinates me all the different ways that women either always knew they wanted to be in the industry or stumbled upon the industry, I want to kind of go back to the roots. Have you always known that you wanted to be in the industry? I feel like for a lot of female mechanics, they sort of get this question, like, what's your story? How does this happen? Um, Mine is not necessarily as common. My family was not mechanics. I did not come from an automotive related family. My grandfather was an electrician. I had uncles that were in the trades and my mom was always kind of a DIYer with everything, house and cars alike. But I did have a fascination with automobiles at a very young age. And it really started... Um, I was probably around five and I found this hot wheel in an alleyway that was in sort of our backyard. I used to live in garden Grove. I can picture it like it was yesterday as a white bell air with purple flames. And I was just enamored with it. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And that was my favorite hot wheel. And then I got into hot wheels a lot. And I was always very much like a tinkerer. I like to take things apart, which that is a classic thing. I think, um, no matter what mechanics I've just, they're always that kind of personality. And when I was younger, my brother loved Legos, but he is a more artistic mindset as to where me, I'm more mechanical. Mm -hmm. He didn't like the building of the Legos, but he liked the playing of the Legos. And so I would always build them for him and he would play with them. I have to ask out of pure curiosity, Angelina, do you still have that Hot Wheel? My mom probably does. That's so cool. She's got like this big bucket of toys. And I know that's something that she would not have gotten rid of. So I can guarantee she probably has it. You should like put that up on a mantle or something like this is where it all started. I actually should. That would be hilarious. But even more, probably what you'll think is more hilarious. I was kind of a weird kid in middle school. I had a friend whose dad had a 90s. I can't remember what year because it's so long ago, but it was 9-11 and it was convertible. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever, coolest car I'd ever seen. So I was like, one day I'm getting a Porsche. And um, also I had this thing for truck and Chevy trucks particularly. And I used to walk home from middle school. And even though I didn't know anything about trucks or about cars, um, I had this affinity for Chevy and not Ford. And so I used to buy these post-it notes from the 99 cent store with babysitting money. And on my way walking home from school every single day, if I saw a Ford truck that was parked and nobody was in it, I would write on a post-it note, get a Chevy, and I would slap it on their truck. <laughs> You're kidding me. Looking back, I can't imagine walking up to my vehicle and in some middle schoolers writing on some post-it note, somebody <laughs> telling me to get a Chevy awesome. or another car company. And it just sort of continued to grow from there. As I got into high school, my high school didn't have an automotive program at all, nothing hands-on. I wanted to be in automotive so badly and I loved cars. I just didn't know anything about them or knew anybody who knew anything about them. And um, my first car was a Honda Civic, it was a 98. I still have it actually, because that was the first engine I ever built, the first car I ever turboed. And when I went to lower it in high school, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It took me three days to lower it because I just trying to figure out how to do this thing. And uh, my mom being like, you know, what the hell are you doing to your car? And YouTube wasn't a thing. It was yeah. the old fashioned figure it out. From there, I loved the modification. I loved the coolness 
aesthetics. I have to ask real quick, Angelina, what did your folks think of this? At the time, my mom was not about it. They really wanted me to be a nurse. And I did want to help people. Looking back now, I understand where my mother was coming from. My mom wasn't traditional in that like, you can't be a mechanic because you're a woman. She didn't want me to be a mechanic because she didn't want me to live a hard life. And it is a hard laboring job where you make money by the sweat of your brow. Um, but it's more than that. It's a skilled position. But I think in her mind, she wanted me to have a cush job, something that was going to be easy, and I wasn't going to have to break my back over. Not that nursing is cush. It's hard. It's a different type of it's different. Exactly. It's different. And so at the time, my family wasn't really stoked about it, um, which is sort of what pushed me. I took all my nursing prereq classes here at the college before I got an automotive. But each semester, I would take an automotive class sort of low key, secretly, just because that was something I wanted to do. And after a while, I realized I really enjoy my automotive classes. I just felt more at home in the automotive building talking about and doing what I really enjoyed. And there was a point in time, I'd say probably when I was around 19 or so, where I just told my mom, I'm sorry, I love you, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And at the time, it was tough for her. But I mean, if you were to ask her now, she is very happy I pursued what I loved rather than what I was being sort of pushed into or told to do. What kind of experience did you have as you went through your education? Most common thing I hear is, yes, it was me and maybe one other woman, or I was the only one. Was that a similar experience for you? It was, but we have to think we're back. I started the automotive program here at RCC in 2006. It was different times. There were not very many females. It was me and maybe like one other girl who was in my principal's class. And then from there, sporadically, I would see one other girl, but there wasn't ever really more than just the two in the class. And even more so as the program went along, unfortunately, I did see some of them sort of drop off for various reasons. Um, Not bad or good, you know, because this program is always pretty supportive of females, males alike, you know, as you go through a program, you can decide whether or not you love it. And if you don't love it, you probably should go to something else. Um, everybody should do what they love rather than push towards something just because the idea of it. And for various reasons, other girls would drop off. And my graduating class, I'm not sure, but I think I might have been the only female to have graduated around the time that I did because everybody just sort of drops off. Again, you're also looking at how many students start off versus how many students finish. It's the law of averages. Exactly. You went ahead and you got your certification, your ASE certified. Is that correct? So I have uh, two associates in automotive. Um, One is automotive mechanical, the other is automotive electrical, and I am ASE master certified. Got it. See, I did my homework. And that's a lot of schooling. And then you went out into the workforce. Now, I want to talk a little bit about getting the first job. Did the school help you get your first job or what was that experience like for you? Not at the time. We didn't really have a lot of, I don't want to say we lacked support in in employment, but we did. And I think it was simply because there's just not enough hands. We had some really great instructors, but they were busy being instructors. It it really is a whole nother job to find students jobs, Um, especially now that I'm learning because I'm being a part of it as an instructor myself. We have people from the college who can help with employment, but the problem is unless those two are really intertwined, 
Um, you have to have people who understand the industry and who have a network in the industry to be able to successfully find students jobs. And so we're working currently on our new apprenticeship program with that. We have a team. It's me and two other people. One person deals with a lot of the employers. The other person deals a lot with the students. I send them employers who I already have a network with. I send them students who I already know are going to be rock solid, show up. You know, they're mechanically inclined and they're going to kick butt and represent our program well. We have very high standards for who we get that type of employment. Um, We do so much more than we used to. My first job actually was sort of on my own. It was down the street from my house and it was a private shop. I was actually a waitress at Coco's at the time. And so this was sort of like a second gig because I had to support myself as I was going through school to put suspension on the Civic and gas in my car and things like that. So um, it was a private shop and it was an intern position because, you know, you figure at that time, an 18 year old girl who has zero experience, who's taking automotive classes, but hasn't really completed any programs yet. At the time, nobody's going to pay somebody like that. And so I felt lucky to be there, lucky that they were going to give me a shot to work for free. And that lasted for a few months. The owner of the shops, it was a very small shop. So the owner was the service writer and he was also a shop foreman. And he had one other tech that worked there, but it was a very small shop. And he was freshly divorced at the time. I knew him because he had worked on my car before. And so I went to him because he was close to my house and I kind of sort of knew him. And um, he progressively got more and more creepy and made weird jokes. My first day on the job, he made a joke about there being a camera in the bathroom. There was lots of very odd things that an 18-year-old girl does not know how to handle. And so after a few months and sort of one advance that was just a bit too much for me, I didn't say anything to him. I just stopped showing up. Not the best thing to do, but that's what my 18-year-old self did. I want to pause for a moment because, you know... Hindsight 2020. (laughs) Sure. Now that you're older and you go back and you hear yourself share that story out loud, what would you tell your younger self? What would you have done differently? I would have told myself I needed to be very observant in my situation and I needed to figure out whether or not um, this situation could be salvaged or not. And one thing I told myself to do is first, you need to be very clear with your expectations, and you need to be very clear that there will be no chance of anything of that sort of shenanigans happening. And dependent on the reaction would depend if I left. And if I didn't want to do that, and I felt uncomfortable at the time, then I do wish I was a little bit more professional. It didn't come back to bite me in the butt, but I just hold myself to a standard of, I like to let people know now here's why I'm upset with you. I didn't like what you did. Hopefully that person can learn something from that, move along and not do that again. At least it's out there where they're clear on what it was rather than making up a story in their head. Exactly. I want to ask a little bit, when you say I would have made my expectations clear, what would you have said? Would you have dressed it immediately with them or put yourself in a listener's shoes? Let's say there's an 18 year old right now listening to this. And there wasn't any advances or anything like that yet, but they're starting to get some vibes. How would you coach them through on how to handle it? 
it's really difficult because there's no black and white. It's so great. I mean, if you're the one in the situation and you know that there's vibes, depending on how strong those vibes are to you, if you're uncomfortable in any way, shape or form, I would tell an 18 year old listener dealing with that same exact situation, don't stay any longer than is necessary if you're that uncomfortable. Um, and if they are doing stuff to make you feel uncomfortable, let them know. However, again, not black and white, because I can also see my 18 year old self feeling uncomfortable letting them know what's wrong because of the reaction that could potentially come back, whether that's what the hell are you talking about? You know, that's not what I meant by that. And them getting maybe offended rather than understanding where an 18 year old girl's coming from. The only way I can feel this way now is because I've experienced so many things. I don't give a darn anymore because I built myself up to where I try not to do everything for other people. The way I feel is important as well, but there is always balance too. And it is unfortunate that sometimes you might think you're taking something a certain way and that's not at all what it was meant to. And that's where the communication comes in. Um, I probably would have had my boyfriend come in a few more times just to be very clear as to where I stood with my relationship and that there was zero interest. Even if that's the case, Dale, he was probably in his 50s and I was 18 at the time. It would have been an inappropriate relationship regardless. <laughs> I'm sorry. You and I can see each other because we have video going, but the listeners obviously... <laughs> So if I'm being honest, I've kicked around the idea of doing video for my podcast. <laughs> what I just did is part of the reason why I had like a look of disgust on my face. <laughs> like, I can't, like, I think right there is why I'm hesitant because some people have suggested you should do video with it and put it on YouTube. And I'm watching you and I look over at my face and I'm like, God, I can't even like fix my face. Like it was just all over it. <laughs> Yeah, no, there was no hiding that. I could definitely see that. At the time, I believe me, your face was everything I was feeling as well, which was just like, I don't like this. And, you know, I have to be very clear. He never touched me or was super vulgar. It just got to the point where he was making odd jokes, like I said, about the camera in the bathroom and also started asking me sort of out after hours and then asked if I wanted to get some drinks. Again, I'm 18. It's not legal for me to drink. And it's also a very odd sort of thing to do. And all of those things put together, which if you say them out loud, they don't seem that bad. But in this situation, you have to be aware. I'm glad I left at the time that I did. I don't know what that would have turned into. And I don't know how my 18-year-old self would have been able to handle that. And so I removed myself from the situation. So I don't have much regret on how I handled it. But how I am now, I do like to let people know, yeah, that's kind of weird, man. I'm not really into that. Or let's be clear, I'm here to work and nothing past that. But it's tough. My daughter's 13. In that situation, you were 18. That's just five years from where she's at right now. And when I hear yourself and other women share these stories, like I immediately think of my daughter and I just feel anger. Like how has this been acceptable for so long to objectify women this way? I've had conversations with my dad around comments that he has made where I felt a certain way. Like he made a comment about how he didn't know my mom didn't cook a lot before they got married, like a comment like that. And I sat there and like 
my daughter and son were there. He left or whatever, and it just ate at me to the point where I called him, and I'm like, I'm not okay with that. Right. Don't make comments like that in front of my kids. Right. Because I don't want either of them getting the message. That's the expectation of women. And I told dad and I said, your daughter's not the one. And he apologized. But I think it's those types of conversations we have to keep having. And I think that's it right there. That's the important part. It's the conversations. Um, And I think it's important that we do recognize that sometimes people say things not realizing how they are received. And also, we as a people have changed. I mean, we look back as far as, you know, the 40s and 50s, and we know the traditional sort of outlook on things. And even moving in through the 60s and 70s and the progression into the 80s and the 90s, we are different people completely. And you almost can't blame some people for where they got these outlooks And the best thing that we can do rather than scream at them is to explain to them, here's why what you said sucks. Mm -hmm. Imagine being in my shoes and hearing these types of things. My dad would always say, you get more flies with honey than with vinegar. It's a great saying, by the way. That's cool. Yeah. He also used to say something that was hilarious. And now it's just ingrained in me. Think before you stink. Wait, say that again. It's cheesy, but think before you stink. (laughs) (laughs) Think before you stink. Think before you do something stupid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. I have never heard that. And tell your dad I'm totally stealing that to share with my kiddos. (laughs) I'll let him know. But I do feel going back to the whole bees with honey thing, um, we will gain so many more allies in this sort of movement if we are calculated in how we handle these situations, um, because I don't think they're always meant to be demeaning. I agree. And we let them know that's demeaning. A lot of times I think we'll find people will be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Now from there, if they decide, well, screw you, I'm going to continue to be demeaning, then, you know, go to town. But you've done your part at that point. Exactly. And that's the start of this. So if we move forward, you were there for two months. You were in schooling during that time. Did you go and seek out another like internship? I guess, what's that gap? Or was it just schooling at that time? I did go through a year gap where I actually worked for the Southern California Gas Company as a meter reader for a year. That was an interesting job especially as a small woman at the time, um, walking through some questionable neighborhoods by herself, not allowed to carry any protection or anything. That was interesting in its own. I was lucky enough in my program here, I was offered up an opportunity to participate in a competition uh, called the Skills USA competition. Um, and I'm not sure if you've heard of that one before. Just for the listeners, give a 30-second summary of what it is. Sure. So Skills USA is a vocational competition that starts in a regional space, moves to the state, and then goes to nationals, and then goes to world. And it's in every vocational area you could possibly think of. Um, And this is including robotics and stuff, but they have custodial services. There's auto body Um, There was auto service technology, which is the one I competed in. There's welding, tons and tons and tons of areas. 
And one of my instructors said, you know, I think that you would be good for this. Are you interested? And I was, I'm so competitive. And so I was like, yes, competition. <laughs> Is that what she said? Competition? Yes, I'm down for that. Um, I competed with two other classmates of mine who actually were friends and they were great students as well. But through hard work and diligence, I won the gold at regional, which is our sort of Southern inland uh, California area. Then I went to the competition for the state of California and I won second place. At the time, I was extremely disappointed because I'm very competitive and I'm very Ricky Bobby. Like if you're not first, you're last. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Looking back, I'm actually pretty proud of the accomplishment because it's the entire state of California. And the one guy that I did lose to, he had just won second place at the world competition the previous year. So if I could have chosen somebody to lose to, you know, I was like, yeah, all right, I can give myself a break. The guy's pretty good. Um, But what's really cool is in the skills competition for auto service tech, there is a written competition where you take sort of like an ASC test. You have to build a portfolio and then there is sort of the lab competition for skills. And so there'll be like 15 different stations and you're allowed, you know, so many minutes at each station and there's one for engine measuring and then there's one for measuring brake rotors and doing a pre-delivery inspection and testing a charging system and so on and so forth. And I had a great instructor to teach me um, electrical And he's actually my current mentor. And I was rock solid with my electrical. And the judge at the electrical stage happened to be a woman who worked for American Honda. And after I completed the competition, um, I had a few minutes to spare because I completed it early. She handed me her card after she graded my competition. She said, do you ever want a job? You let me know. And I was like, oh, my God, even (laughs) if I lose everything, like I just got, you know, this whole thing was worth it. And so I actually got a job with Honda after that as a lube tech and sort of moved through. And that's how I got into my next job. Wow, that's way cool. It was a great competition. I highly recommend anybody who has the opportunity to join to, to do it. It's a cool experience. I can only imagine. The thing with competitions is that there are so many other benefits you get from it other than what you are actually training to do. Right. Like, yes, you get better at those things, but there's so many intangibles around it that it teaches you. There's just a win-win in doing those. So you go out, you have your next job, which you landed. You didn't even know it was a job interview, right? (laughs) You're going out and doing your thing and competing. And little did you know, here you are having a job interview and you get your next job. Now, were you attending school at the same time while you were working then? Yes. During my time doing the competition, I think I was in my last semester before I graduated. So this would have been about 2010. It took me about four years because I uh, was working on the nursing before I got into automotive. After that, I had graduated and I had continued to work for Honda. I worked for Honda for about uh, two years. And that was a completely different experience all in its own as well. It was my first time working at a dealership and understanding how dealerships work. And I made a lot of awesome connections. I had a lot of really cool coworkers who I was able to share experiences with and, and things like that. Um, no female coworkers at the time, actually, when I got hired there, I would have been the first female ever. But at the time, I was the only female out of my auto group. So there was four dealers in my auto group. And so once I was hired, um, there were people from all of the dealers. I was working at Honda. There's people from Nissan and Volkswagen and Mazda who were like secretly walking by to like 
see the zoo animal because <laughs> everybody's like, what the heck is going on? There's a girl working in the shop. Oh my God. Uh, so that was an interesting experience all on its own. She's not behind the desk. She's actually getting her hands dirty. Yeah. So that was interesting. Um, I had a very interesting service manager at the time. He was not super stoked, I think, to have me, but I really made sure that my resume was just unbeatable. I had my letter of recommendation from my judge from American Honda. I had two associates. I was close to getting my ASE master by that time. So I was just like, you don't have to hire me, but how could you not? Like, what else can I have? Yeah, like you would look dumb not to. One of the things he said to me as I got hired was, well, we'll see how you do wrenching. And I was like, okay, you know, you can think whatever you want. I know I'm going to kick butt, so that's okay. What recommendations would you give women, and particularly young women, that are trying to put together I don't even want to say portfolio. It's really a resume. If you go in for an interview, I see this a lot. What do you wear? What should be on your resume? It's kind of this mystical thing that a lot of women go through because it's exactly what you said when I heard you say, I wanted to make sure it was rock solid, right? What does rock solid look like? I wanted as many credentials as possible to help sell myself. One thing I'd absolutely recommend um, and this would go really for anybody is one being clear about your objective and two selling the crap out of your skills. A lot of students think, well, what do I know? Cause if somebody was to ask you, well, what do you know? What do you know about cars? Mm -hmm. If you were to ask me, I'm like, I don't know. Ask me a question. You know, like, where do you want me to start? Cars are very complex. Um, so what do I know as a student? I'll try to help them by simply asking them questions. Do you know how to do a compression test? Do you know how to cylinder leakage test? Do you know how to use a digital voltometer? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, these are all selling points. These need to go and bullet points in your skills. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I know how to do this. And to be completely honest, when it comes to the automotive skills, I don't think anything is too small to put down that you know. Uh, proficient with basic hand tools. I know how to analyze uh, digital voltometer readings. I know how to analyze analyze vehicle alignment readings. Um, I know how to use an alignment rack or a tire machine or this or that or the other. And when I start to put it that way, I'll tell them, what classes have you taken? Think about things that were covered in the class. What do you feel comfortable doing? And once they sort of get the ball rolling, they're like, oh, okay, I actually do know how to do some stuff. But that's your one chance to sell yourself is that sort of skills area. Also, I tried really hard to make sure that I had any certification from a training or a tool that I got a certification on how to use, all that stuff I added in there. Like I said, all the ASE tests, even if you've passed an ASE test and you didn't get the certification because you don't have the work experience, put that you passed the test. It's not quite as good. It's almost just as good, but also including information on any projects that you've been working on. Let's say you've, at the time I was building a Honda Civic, I included things that I had personally done on the car. I built the engine. I used these components. I changed the suspension from this to this. And I did this because all of these little things tell an employer, these are things that they're capable of and can be used at the shop. But one last thing that was huge, it's already really hard to get a job as a tech if you have a DUI. Not to mention, if you're a female at that time especially, 
with a DUI, it would be, you'd be unhirable. And so I was very cautious about anything that could potentially affect my job in the field as far as auto insurance would go. You know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't do a little street racing back in my day and some late night car shenanigans. Um, but I was always very cautious because I knew if I got caught for anything like reckless driving or exhibition of speed, again, there goes my career as a technician. If I got a DUI, there goes my career. I didn't realize that. It's not impossible to get a job, but it makes the battle an uphill battle. If you do have these things on your record, more than likely, unless you've got, you know, a ridiculous in at a dealer, it's going to be very hard to gain a job as a technician at a dealer. Private shops are not as bad, but they're still going to be tough to hire you because their insurance has to cover you. And their insurance wants to know if techs have DUIs because you have to test drive cars. So does your tech have a DUI? Are they reckless drivers? Are they doing stupid stuff? Because if that's the case, we're not going to cover you. But there are private shops out there where you'll get hired as independent contractor and you could do things that way. And I've worked in shops where they did that and coworkers that had um, that stuff on the record were able to still work there because of that. But there's no need to make a battle much harder than it already is. And that was sort of my outlook on it. I want to backpedal a little bit. You said, make sure you're clear on your objective. Talk a little bit about that. So if the position, let's say it's a porter position or a lube tech position, you can put to obtain a position as that, but I would put that it's clear that I want to be a technician to eventually become a technician on the line or whatever that might be. That way, from the beginning, the service manager knows what you're trying to do. And so later on, when it is time, like, hey, I've been here for six months or whatever it might be, I've done everything you told me to do. I'd like to try to move up. You can say it was in my resume. I have been very clear from the start that I wanted to do these things because sometimes employers will like to come back to you and be like, well, you know, this is where we've got you. And and this is sort of where we want to hold you because sometimes employers want to take advantage of particular positions. I was held in a position as a lube tech for quite a while. And this is while I was helping line techs bouncing from bay to bay, helping line techs compete jobs that other people got to flag for. And I um, was doing jobs that other people got paid for. I was there because I wanted to work on cars. And I just wasn't getting paid for a lot of the things that I was doing. And when it came time to move up, and I'm like, hey, you know, I've got tools, I want to pay of my own, I want to get paid the money that I'm pulling in. There was a lot of pushback. And then they started talking about moving other people up instead, people who putting in the work that I was doing. And Um, Once I realized I don't need this, another place is going to find my skills a lot more useful than this place is. And that's when I left. I'm grateful for a lot of things I got to learn. My only regret is actually I probably felt like I stayed there in that position for a little too long and allowed myself to get taken advantage of. Um, But again, it comes down to self-worth and really understanding, making that list of things you know. And as that list grows longer and longer and longer, you are more valuable as an employee, as long as you're not getting comebacks from every single car or, you know, you're taking eight hours to do a break job when it should have taken you 30 minutes or whatever it might be. I'm going to fast forward a little bit because I want to get to the point where you've kind of brought this full circle. Now, how many total years experience did you have out in the field? Air quotes there. I had about seven Mm -hmm. officially um, unofficially I had bounced around to, with a couple of friends with their shops to help out with, uh, things, but on paper about seven in various areas. Now you're an instructor. Go ahead and share where you teach at. 
I teach automotive at Riverside City College. It's a community college. They actually recently just changed the name from community college to city college. I think it's because for whatever reason, society has this like weird outlook on community college as if it's some sort of like, you know, that's where all the losers go. But I am so incredibly happy to work here because we not only teach people the trades, but we teach them at a rate that they can afford and is not going to put them in debt. So, you know, our programs are tiny fraction of what a lot of the for-profit trade schools are. And I would recommend any student to go to community college, even if your goal is to go to university. We have a lot of the same math and English classes and science classes, and our class sizes are smaller. Your instructor is going to know your name rather than, you know, a TA knowing your name at a university. You're going to pay a fraction of the cost. There's just so many benefits. So I always recommend students take as much as you can at community college and then move on to wherever it is that you want to go to. Um, But what's nice is we provide our associate's degrees for trade programs and things like that. And if you're going to be a mechanic, you do not need to go past that. I mean, you don't even need an associate's degree, but a lot of places would like to see a certificate of completion of some sort. I guess, how did you get into that? Into teaching? Yeah, you were out in the field doing your thing. Like, how did that even happen? After I left Honda, I went to, well, a couple of shops, but one was uh, the one I stayed sort of longer at was a hot rod shop in Riverside called Ted's Rod Shop. And I got to do so much cool stuff there. But while I was working at the hot rod shop, my mentor now, Paul O'Connell, he was uh, my instructor at the time. And after I had graduated and toward the end of my time in the program, he said, well, we've got this new program called Supplemental Instruction, and I think you'd be really good. Um, Would you be interested? And I asked him what it was. And he said, you would be holding study groups for very specific automotive classes that you've already taken and were successful in. You'd just be helping other people in those same classes. And it wasn't like a TA or tutoring. I was simply facilitating study groups and making sure people were staying on the right path. And I said, sure, that sounds like fun. And it also allowed me to maintain a connection to the school, which sort of was helpful. You know, there's there's tools and, and places to work on things. And so I said, yes, I had my daytime job as a technician. Um, my night job was to work with students. And I did that for about five years while I was a tech. And after about five years, I was like, ah, you know, I really just want to focus on being a tech. I'm tired of working two jobs. And so I kind of quit that. But shortly after that, that same instructor said, there is a position at Colton High School um, for their automotive program. And for anybody who's not familiar with the area, Colton is about 20 minutes away from Riverside. So it's next door. And I thought, man, you know, this is too soon. There's no way. I don't have enough experience. I'm not qualified for this job. And he told me, you know, that's exactly the same thing I told myself when I got started teaching. And he's like, I think you're plenty qualified and I think you'd be great at it. And I just made the jump. I thought I wanted to be an instructor, but like way later, I'm like, you know, I can't be a mechanic forever. My back, my joint, things start to hurt when you have a physically demanding job. I wasn't quite there yet, but I'm like, that's my end game. But the problem is opportunities don't come when you want them to. They come when they come. And so I thought, you know, well, I can still be a tech at night and teach during the day. And so that's kind of what I ended up doing. And I worked at Colton High for their automotive program for about four years, teaching high school kids how to work on cars. And that was very interesting. Oh, man. I'm just playing through any possibility. (laughs) (laughs) You have very hormonal 
teenage boys in what you were probably in your 20s? I was 25. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm sure there was the token female that came through, but I'm being presumptuous here and guessing the majority were teenage boys. Yes, predominantly teenage boys. And the way the system sort of worked, it wasn't necessarily always teenage boys that wanted to be in automotive. A lot of times they were students who were not successful. And so they sort of used the automotive class and the welding classes as dumping grounds because automotive and welding wasn't for the STEM students because that's below them, which was sort of unfortunate because I had a lot of students who were interested in automotive who were shunned out of the class from the counselor level because they're like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. I had girls who counselors told, no, you don't want to be an automotive. You're a girl. And I'm like, there's a woman teaching the class. How can you say these things? Right. But yes, I did have a few marriage proposals uh, at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I could only imagine. I did sort of grow into my own there. It took a year or so. But I was a hard ass because I wanted them to be successful. And I know the world is not going to do you any favors by being nice to you and by letting you get away with things. And so I was a strict teacher in that you got credit for the work you did. And that was that. And also I wanted to teach them to be professionals. And so there wasn't cursing. If somebody said ass or somebody said, shit, I'm not going to be upset about it. You have to maintain a professional atmosphere because you're never going to keep a job if you can't. There are times where cursing is appropriate with your friends, and there are times where it's not, and you're going to treat me like your boss, right? So you need to act however you would act around your boss. That's how you need to act around me. And say, when they would drop, you know, F-bombs, I said, okay, you've got two options. I can give you a referral and send you to the principal's office, or you can drop and give me 10 push-ups right here, and you're absolved. Of course, nobody ever took the referral. You know, nobody wants to go, I can't make them do push-ups, but nobody wanted the referral. And so they always did the push-ups, and it got to the point to where they would actually police themselves. Oh, Miss A, somebody dropped an F-bomb, or somebody said this. And after a while, I had a pretty tight ship. And I think the biggest thing is that these students, they knew I had their best interests in Mm -hmm. mind and that I was there to give them advice. I was there to teach them a trade and I was there to protect them. We had some, you know, active shooter scares. Mama bear instinct comes in and I'm just like, get in the back. Everybody get in the back now. And they knew that I was going to protect them at all costs. And I think these types of intentions, them knowing that they earned a different respect for me and they would listen to what I said because they knew she just wants to help us. And it actually got to be pretty cool. I had students who were eating Mm -hmm. lunch in my classroom because that's just where they felt comfortable. Um, I got some students jobs at Napa and some quick lube places nearby, um, using the stuff that they learned in class. And so these types of things, I grew to really love that job because of the community of the students. I wasn't even really friends with any of the other instructors at the time because it just, I was automotive and just, you know, if you're not academic, people don't like to talk to you a lot. That's tragic. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I also ran my classroom a bit different than other instructors. Uh, You know, we have our instructor meetings or whatever on certain days. I would have instructors that come in, oh, you have that kid? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're horrible and talk so much smack about a student who's, you know, 14, 15 years old. And I'm like, they're one of my best students. I don't know what you're talking about. 
if I had an ADHD mm-hmm. student, I'm going to let them stand in the back of the class because they got ants in the pants. They're still listening. You know, you have to be flexible with students and allow them to thrive their environment. We need more people like you in the education world. Like my son has ADHD. I have it. Same. <laughs> hey, fellow adhd ear, right on, sister. There's such simple things to help these students really thrive. Right. And it requires very little. It really does. Yeah. It requires a little bit of care. Uh, it requires that you pay attention. Um, because if I've got a student who's being a little butt, running around the classroom, running amok, throwing things, doing this, all I see is you need attention. You need somebody to listen to what you have to say because you have something to say. And so I would call them after class and I would, you know, spend 30 minutes, an hour talking to them about maybe some stuff that was going on in their home life or they were being bullied or there was this, that or the other that was going on in their life. And all they needed was somebody to ask (laughs) and say, what the heck is going on? Why are you acting like this? Because you're not acting like a normal human being. Right now, you're doing unreasonable stuff. And that's usually because something else is going on. And after you would sort of let them get that out, they A, knew that you cared. And B, didn't have all that pent up aggression that they needed to channel. And now they had this energy that could be channeled towards something that was good for them. What was that like for them when you left? I mean, I know how high school kids talk, right? And did you see like an increase in kids wanting to be in your class? Oh, sure. Yeah. I had a major increase in enrollment. Um, I pushed for the students who wanted to be in the class rather than people who were just getting forced into the class. And I think that I grew to the reputation of like, hey, this is somebody who cares. And I know I can't speak for my students, but I know that when I left, I cried my freaking eyes out. Um, Because I love those kids, you know, especially ones I started as freshmen with. It's my first year teaching. I had them in ninth grade and I watched them graduate, you know, and I had them all four years of high school. That is a serious connection that you build with students um, because they almost look at you like an aunt or an uncle or a family member. Especially that age. Exactly. And um, luckily I told them, hey, look, I know you guys are going to miss me, but I'm going right up the street at a community college. So you know where I'm at. And I've had uh, tons of my Colton High School students follow me to Riverside City College. I've had a couple of them already graduate. They're doing well in this program. Is Riverside giving you any commissions? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? I should get a bonus. But I believe in this program so wholeheartedly because it made me It gave me all the opportunity, putting me in the competition, uh, giving me employment as a supplemental instructor, giving me support when I needed it in the classroom. I mean, we can't keep getting the same turnover with other people unless more people sort of come back and pay that back forward. And so it's so important for me to help facilitate that as well, because I mean, I wouldn't be where I'm at without this program. And so I believe very much in the Riverside City College Automotive Program. And I will say confidently, we have one of the best programs around, um, at least statewide. It's just simply because there's faculty here that care. There's a lot of attention being brought. Most of the people here in this program, they're not here for the paycheck. They're here because they love it. And I'm extremely proud to be part of this team. What's next for Angelina? I have so many goals, but here's the one I'm currently working on. When I was a student, I very much wanted to work for Porsche. That was like one of my dreams. I told you about Mm -hmm. my friends. That one did not get a post-it on it. 
<laughs> exactly. That one did not get a post-it on it. Um, at the time, because we didn't have the apprenticeship program and our instructors, like I said, were busy being instructors at the time. I went to Portia and I talked to somebody who had worked there and they're like, yeah, there's no way somebody like you is going to get a job here. You have to know somebody who knows somebody or you have to have Portia experience. And I'm like, well, how the hell am I supposed to do that? If no one's going to give it to me. If no one's going to give it to me. And learning what I've learned now, I had a classmate of mine who was going through the same program at the same time, finished around the same time. He went on to work for Ferrari and I saw how he did it. He went to work for a private shop who worked on Ferraris first, got the experience at the small shop then went to the dealer and got that experience. And so I see that. And um, I've also seen uh, BMW has been extremely supportive of our program. There's a BMW training facility out in Ontario, again, sort of our backyard, uh, you know, a half hour away. And um, we have a pathway to where if students finish our program here, they can apply for the BMW training program and if they are accepted because they got a 3.0, they had good attendance, their instructors referred them, if they were accepted, they got the BMW training for free as long as they made, I believe it's a one-year commitment. And so building that pathway to BMW, because BMW is a nice higher-end company to work for, I want to do something similar with Porsche, um, Ferrari. And I know the higher the company as far as price goes, I know the level of work must be spot on. There's very little room for error. And so I know not every student's going to go there, but I want to provide the opportunity for the students who are there and who are ready for that type of opportunity, that pathway. I don't want students to come out being like, man, I wish I had the connection here. Or I'll never get to be able to get the job here. I want to build pathways in various areas. And that doesn't mean I don't still send students to tire shops or send students to quick lube places or send students to Honda or Toyota or Chevy or Ford. I want all of the opportunities for my students. I want them to have the pick of the litter. And depending on how much you're willing to work, how hard you're willing to work, what GPA you're willing to work for, and what kind of dedication you're willing, you know, I want the world to be their oyster. I want them to have the pick of the litter and say, I want to work for Porsche. I want to work for Ferrari or Maserati, or I want to work for a performance engine shop. I want these pathways to be in place. So every student that comes through here, as long as they're willing to work for it, can achieve their dreams. Not because they lack the opportunity or anything like that. I want to provide that part because they can't provide that part. And so I do a lot of work right now to try to largen our network as RCC and increase the amount of people who know about our program, know the material that we cover, understand that we have very high standards and that we're not going to send people referred who aren't ready for it and who we wouldn't hire ourselves. And that's sort of what the apprenticeship program is about. So we have a couple different programs. We have a company that we work with called Network Connections. And it doesn't matter who you are, what your grades are, you need a job, they will help you find a job, whether it's automotive related or not. Our apprenticeship program is for students who are ready for that next level, who are willing to work hard. They've got to maintain a specific GPA. They've got to show up a certain percentage of time. And lastly, they have to have a referral from one of their lab instructors signing off on them saying, I would hire this person. 
once we have this pool of these incredible students, now I can sort of pass them along to good job opportunities and not just jobs, careers that they will eventually pay their house payments with, feed their kids mouths with, and sort of grow in the area that they want to so they can look back and feel really proud of what they've done and achieve the dreams that they want to achieve. Listening to you and watching you talk about this makes me want to do video. (laughs) I gesticulate a lot. (laughs) So my facial expression makes me not want to do video, but your passion is infectious. I can tell your drive and passion around it and you will make it happen. Thank you. And who knows, you may make some of those connections because of this podcast, because there's some interesting people that I've interviewed that have Porsche connections. So who knows, maybe a sisterhood will pull through for you. You know, I love that about this stuff. And I always talk to students about building network, the importance. Half of the battle is what you know. The other half is who you know. You can be the best mechanic out there, the best technician out there. But if nobody knows about you, you're not going to get the opportunities that you want. And so I appreciate that because I am incredibly passionate about what I do. I wouldn't trade what I do for anything. I'm very happy in what I do. And I'm very happy in getting uh, to help students find the career opportunities that they want. The things that I'm like, I wanted in school, that's what I want to provide them. And I'm going to sound a little self-serving here. I like to do stuff like this because you never know who's listening. It's true. You never know. But I also love talking to people like you and sort of enjoying the sisterhood that is automotive. You and I spoke about this before. Bogey kind of built this incredible thing when she did the Chevy montage. And I had no idea the number of women who were out in the world doing the same thing that I was doing or something close to it or near that and getting to meet, you know, Faye. Faye was one of the first people I met when I went to Bogies. She opened the door and it was just like, are you my best friend right now? <laughs> like it was so bizarre yeah. because, you know, people talk about like love at first sight. I feel like we were like friends at first sight. It was just, you're a mechanic. I'm a mechanic. We're into the same thing. Like, let's be mechanics together. <laughs> let's be mechanics together. And just getting to talk to these other women who had similar experiences, these similar challenges. You and I spoke about when I was talking about, man, I just never felt like I was smart enough. I always thought, you know, maybe my tiny woman brain is just not meant for this. And I really just need to conform and I need to stop swimming upstream because, you know, I just wasn't meant for this. And getting to do that, it completely showed me and opened my eyes that you're lying to yourself, girl. This is your voice talking to you. So the only way that's going to go away is by you stop saying that to yourself because nobody else is thinking that. The challenge comes in and you know what? The guys that are around you, they're challenged too. They just don't show it like you do. And getting to understand some of that I mean, I told you I cried on my way home from my first visit from the Chevy Montage because I was just like, I am not alone. And everything I've been telling myself is a lie. And I don't need to be this self-deprecating. And I don't need to be this self-conscious about what I know or don't know because these women are telling themselves the same thing, which means it's not real. It means that we're telling ourselves this thing. And so that was so cool. And then going to SEMA, which actually probably would have been... SEMA we met, was that the Chevy Montage? It wasn't. Oh, okay. The first time I ever attended SEMA, though was the year the Chevy Montage. And that was 17, I believe, 2017. 
And I remember going to the display. I must have just missed the unveiling of it because it was still kind of buzzing. They were back to back. It was the Mock Foose and uh, Chevy Montage were like back to back displays, like right next to each other. And like it was still buzzing there. And I remember just seeing all these women around and then watching the video. I've always had the automotive bug, but it's like, no, it's just something I can't even describe it. You feel it. It's contagious in all the right ways. Exactly. The whole display, the unveiling, all of the women that were there, it was magical. You know, as cheesy as that sounds, it was absolutely magical. And I'm a different and better person for that experience. And I will forever be grateful to Bogey for that um, because of the connections that were made. I really felt alone for a long time. As much as I enjoyed working with my male counterparts, I just felt alone. And that feeling only feeds your questioning of your self-confidence. Self-doubt. And the self-doubt, exactly. Um, It was just such a cool feeling to know, like, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. We're sprinkled about, you know. It just felt like a unicorn seeing another unicorn or a tribe of unicorns and was like, yes, (laughs) yes. It's a special type of sisterhood. It really is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think this is a good time to launch into the red line round because given the conversation that we're having right now, I think leads in, and I'm curious how you're going to answer some of these. So what the red line round is, it's just five rapid fire questions. There's no right or wrong answer to it. Whatever pops into your head is the right answer. Are you ready? I'm ready. All righty. Who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the industry? I would say my mentor at RCC, my instructor, Paul O'Connell, had really pushed me through some really hard times and my fiance as well. Without both of those guys, I would have quit a long time ago. Um, because of the lies I was telling myself and both of them were extremely supportive and just like, listen, stop being silly and get your nose back down to the grindstone and do what you know you'd have to do. And without that kind of inspiration, you know, my mentor would always tell me if it was easy, everyone would do it. Those types of things that really carried me through and continue to inspire me. I love it. Where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck on a job? Good old-fashioned Google and YouTube. (laughs) Also, I have some friends who in various specialty areas generally call whoever is in that specialty area and say, hey, I'm stuck. And I love having that network because some of those guys will call me and say, hey, I'm stuck in this thing. Can you help me? And so to be able to kind of have that network of automotive friends is always really cool. But right on the dot right now, good old-fashioned Google and YouTube has saved my life. Oh, yeah. I think I may have a clue on where the next answer will go. What excites you most about what you do? I love technology. I love learning about new designs. I love learning about how to make things better. Learning new things on how to go fast really excites me. So right now, I picked up the engine rebuilding classes. And when you start to learn something new, you don't realize how much you don't know. And in my head, it wasn't new to me. I was like, oh, I've built engines. Um, maybe I didn't spend as much time in a machine shop as I would have liked. But you know, I know my way around an engine, I understand what to measure and what I need to do and yada, yada, yada. But when I started teaching the engine class, I was like, I need to do this the best I possibly can. And so the research that has gone into that class is ridiculous. And I've just gone down so many rabbit holes. And the more I learn, the more I'm like, you don't know shit. <laughs> you, you, 
have so much to learn, little lady. Um, And I've been lucky enough to sort of expand my network. There's this group called Delta Lambda. What's the name of it again? Delta Lambda by EFI University. Okay. Ben Strader is the one who runs it. And he wanted to build a group of people who were very interested in race engine building and design. And it's all these head honchos in pro stock, in nitro, in all these different racing classes who are just like the gods of race engine building. And I'm in the same group with them. And I'm just like, I can't furiously write fast enough the amount of information, but it's awesome because it is a fraternity. And I am in a fraternity and I laugh about that all the time because I think I might be the only girl in there. That's way cool. But getting to hear these types of new concepts, that stuff, it makes my eyes light up. I love it. I could do it all day long. Now I'm kind of shifting gears to you personally and kind of what makes you tick. What's a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly in this industry when you feel stuck or discouraged? I would definitely say that once I reach that point and you might have some relation to this because ADHD brain. Um, if I get stuck, my anxiety level rising creates me to get an emotional response. Not necessarily when I say emotional, not necessarily crying. I can get very angry and want to throw a tool across the shop. And before being diagnosed with ADHD, I would give in to these fits of rage. Like the impulsivity behind it. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes there was crying, but there's no crying, you know, like there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in automotive. So I'd just run to the bathroom, cry it out real fast, and I'd come back so nobody would think I was a big wuss. And what I've learned is that when I get in these moments, I have to remove myself from the situation, step back. I may need to try to do some breathing exercises to regather my thoughts. And sometimes I need to work on something else um, because my confidence level in whatever I'm really getting anxious about has dropped. And now I'm not thinking clearly. And so I'll go grab a drink of water. If I have the luxury of coming back at something the next day, I'll try to do that. Um, but if I've got to get this job done now, I will give myself a few minutes break to think about something else or talk to somebody else um, because the emotional response definitely clouds your judgment and I am not able to work clearly and effectively that way. In fact, I'll just get more mad and you'll get hot and sweaty and now my hands are slippery and now I really can't do it and then I want to punch things and so then I need to step back, take a breather, take a drink of water, take this from a different angle and that's how I do it. You know, I don't know how everybody else does it, but that's how I've learned to sort of approach those situations. Thank you so much for being, what I'll say, vulnerable and transparent around that. Do you mind me asking, how old were you when you were diagnosed? This year. High five, sister. Just two years ago, I was diagnosed. I was 40 years old when I was diagnosed. Many women go undiagnosed. My brother was diagnosed when he was a child because he was a lot more hyperactive. Mm -hmm. But we share a lot of the same symptoms. I mean, I knew 10 years ago I had it, but I was worried about what people might think about me. And so I was always very scared of getting that diagnosis. It was the medication that scared me. Yeah, me too. Um, but I started realizing that I was having trouble with my confidence because I was unable to focus in conversations when I'm doing jobs. And that makes me seem, or at least it felt like I seemed ditzy. 
And it makes me feel like I'm not living up to my potential, that I know I'm capable of more and that I just felt stupid because I couldn't focus. But getting the diagnosis, understanding and doing more research about ADHD, I now know how to work with myself rather than against myself, sort of understand my impulsivities a lot more. I will say the medication has helped quite a bit, especially in specific scenarios. Did you notice an impact on your relationships? Just because with ADHD, sometimes I say we, just because you shared with me that you've been officially diagnosed, that we may come off as not interested in what people are saying or uh, insensitive. Yes. And it's quite opposite. Like I'm incredibly empathic and loving and caring and care about people, but the ADHD side of me can give people the impression of the opposite. I've had students that told me, I'm very clear about some of the things that I struggle with. On the first day of class in every one of my classes, I will tell my class I have ADHD. Um, and even before I was officially diagnosed, I'd say like, I'm very ADD-ish. So please bear with me. And I never used to do that until I had a student who I was having a conversation with. And, you know, it's it, we're in lab. So it's sort of a side conversation with their group. And it sort of comes up and I'm like, yeah, you know, my brother had ADHD and I'm pretty darn positive I have it. I'm very all over the place all the time explaining this to a student. And one of the students listening was like, I had no idea um, that you struggled with that. And I now understand a lot more about you. I thought that you were ignoring me a lot of the time because you would just walk away in the middle of me talking because another student called for me or something like that. And I was just like, I never thought about that. And so now I feel like it's extremely important for me to explain myself so students understand where my behavior comes from. I try not to be self-deprecating about it, but just more of, please understand, I am never trying to ignore you. If you asked me, hey, I need help, Miss A., um, when you get the chance and I don't come around in five, 10 minutes, do not feel bad about reminding me that you needed help because I may forget, especially five new people then ask me for help after you. The short term memory, we have like 80 thoughts, yeah. like just, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I guess selfishly, I go down this path with you because what you're describing is so much of what I experienced and so much so that when I was younger, I had a temper. I mean, I still do. I just know how to control it. But it was bad. Could have like hurt people. Yeah, I was an angry kid as well. My fuse was very short. That was for sure. Mine was too. It's grown, but it's taken a lot of work because it's just hard. And I would encourage anyone that if you think you do, just go get assessed. There's so much taboo around it. It doesn't have to be. Oh, so much. I think a big a part of it is that people think it's not real. It's made up. It's just ants in the pants. And that's not the case at all. Uh, we do see a rise in ADHD type symptoms because of technology. But also at the same time, people are like, oh, well, all of a sudden there's all these people with ADHD. No. First off, a lot of people went undiagnosed. My mom never knew she had it. And now I'm realizing, oh, doing research, it's hereditary. You got it from somebody. My dad so has it. He has every symptoms. My mom and my dad, both my parents are very ADD. It's hilarious. And most people are terrified when they meet my family <laughs> um, because we all talk over each other. So I hate being rude. Um, like you, I'm very empathetic. I like to take other people's feelings into consideration. Yes. But when a thought would come into my head pre-diagnosis, 
I would just say it and I blurt out because if I didn't yeah. say it, I would forget it. And so I didn't realize putting that is and how annoying that is that somebody just keeps interrupting you and interjecting until sort of doing these research and people are saying like, you know, these are common symptoms, you know, interrupting people and, and just sort of uh, blurting out things. And I was like, oh my God. So now when I get that impulse, all right, what are you thinking about? Hold it in, wait until they're done, listen to what they're saying, let them finish. And then, you know, continue. But it wasn't until getting the diagnosis, being able to have more sort of fuel from that to do more research on ADHD and understanding how that manifests itself, especially in women and girls, because it looks different. It does. And oftentimes goes undiagnosed for women, especially adult women. Most times. Yeah. And that's what people don't realize too, is, you know, it doesn't go away. You had it as a kid, you still have it as an adult. It didn't go away. That's right. And it's easily treated. Right. Do you know what I mean? There's options. But trying to figure out the right dosage and stuff, there's some trial and error around that. Yeah. And we're all different. Your dosage might be different than my dosage. And, you know, whether you like flow release or fast release or whatever that might look like. And some research does show that after a few years of taking the correct dosage of medication, you can build new pathways in your brain and you could potentially sort of cure yourself. So I'm looking a lot into that. Keep me posted. Right. Yeah. I was just reading a book that was called, I believe it's the gift of ADHD. And it was talking about it can be a gift or a curse depending on how you work with it. Even though it's labeled as a disability, it's not a disability. It's more of a personality sort of trait, it seems. And you need to know your strengths and weaknesses. That way you don't fight yourself so much against things and put yourself in situations you know you're going to struggle with. Be aware of things that you do and work with it. Take your strengths and sort of highlight them rather than shove them down. Turns out there's a lot of strengths to having ADHD. It makes me a better teacher, I think. I mean, besides, you know, students having to remind me when they need help sometimes, it allows me to be a lot more interesting in class. It gives my students a different perspective as well. That sort of personal relationship you're able to build, it turns out we tend to be a little bit funnier too. Quirky. Yeah, we're quirky. Um, Because of that, it makes class interesting. That's awesome. Well, thanks for going down that mini rabbit hole with me. Number five and the final one, what is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the skilled trades industry? This is a very competitive industry, man or woman. So make sure that you want to do it for the right reasons. And if you do, you are not alone. There are many women out there. And I would highly recommend, especially for young women, you're getting into the field. When you run into these types of odd situations, whether that be, you know, sexual harassment, or how do I deal with coworker in this way, because this is happening. Don't be afraid to ask other females, what did you do? And no one answer is ever the right answer, but get a survey because you're not the first person this has ever happened to. And if you think that way, you'll put yourself in this hole. All you have is this person talking to yourself. And sometimes we can be very unreasonable with ourselves. When you're beating up on yourself, because that's kind of what a lot of femcanics do, when you're beating up on yourself, you need to ask yourself, if I had a friend who was in this position, would I tell them the same thing? 
Or would you be a lot nicer? If that's the answer, then you need to be a lot nicer to yourself. And I don't have all the answers. I mean, I still have to remind myself to do these types of things. But reach out. Don't be afraid of speaking your mind. And don't be afraid to ask questions. We're always afraid to ask questions because we don't want to be judging. This is me. Even when I go to trainings now as an adult, as a 33-year-old, I still have to remind myself every time I go to a training, all right, Angelina, you need to sit up in the front row and you need to ask the questions that you have because they're not stupid. Even if it is a stupid question, it's better you ask it earlier on rather than later on, especially if you're going to tech school. This is your chance to ask those questions. If you don't ask those questions now, they will look like more silly questions later on. I was always worried about, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? If I ask this question and I look stupid, everybody already thinks, oh, there's the dumb girl in the class or whatever. And that's not even really the case anyways. But this is what my brain tells myself. Oh, you know, she's the girl in the class. Of course, she's going to ask the stupid question. I didn't want to fulfill that prophecy. But you're making that up in your head. Even if that's how they think, who cares? You paid for your education. You take charge of that, right? Like pretend you're in an empty room. The more you put in at that level, the more you're going to get later on. And it's going to build your confidence when you go out into the field and you work with these other technicians as well. And then also one last thing I'd like to put in is that when I was a starting technician, I thought, okay, if I want to work up here in racing or at Porsche, I have to start down here and I got to start at this level shop and then work my way up and work my way up and work my way up. Don't do that. You don't have to do that. If you want to work on a race team, you go for a freaking race team right now. If you want to do something specific in industry, go for it right now and go work for free. Go sweep the floors, put in the grunt time because everybody has to start at the bottom. But do it sooner rather than later. It's so important to just go straight for what you want. Don't waste time because life is short. And, you know, you'll look 10 years down the road and you never really reached your goal because you got stuck in the weeds doing other things. Go for it. Take no prisoners, no mercy, because if it was easy, everyone would do it. And there you have it. (laughs) Angelina, where and how can people connect with you? I have an Instagram account that is called Miss A, the shop teacher, and that's ms.a underscore the shop teacher. I also have YouTube account that is the same name, Miss A, the shop teacher. My YouTube account is very chaotic. I'm not a YouTube star. I suck at editing videos. And I only made a YouTube account because when COVID hit, I had to take my classes online And I had to make videos out of necessity. And I thought, well, you know what? While I'm here doing it, I might as well make it public so it can help anybody else that's out there. Plus, it's sort of free advertising for my program. I've actually had a really good responses. It's theoretical. I'm not taking you out to a car and showing you how to do an oil change. I'm telling you how lubrication system works and showing the parts and how electricity works and cars and things like that and how to read a wiring diagram, how to test a relay. They're more theoretical videos because they were for an automotive principles class. Um, I haven't made any videos sort of recently because I'm busy teaching and working on stuff, but I do plan on going back to it. But those are the two accounts that I am on all the time. Instagram, anybody has any questions about the program, Uh, about classes at RCC, or, you know, if you're a struggling femme mechanic and you would like somebody who is maybe spent a little bit more time in industry than you to give you a little bit of advice, I'm always available. 
There's that sisterhood I'm talking about. Angelina, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your world with us and everything jumped into, stumbled upon, or tripped into, and everything in between. Thank you so much for having me on. Like I said, it was an honor, and it's always fun talking to other women who are in industry. My name is Angelina Alcantar. I'm an automotive instructor, and I'm a femcanic. Bethany Bowman is in the driver's seat next. Bethany was born into a family that loved cars, and both her mom and dad drag raced every weekend. She went on to earn her automotive degree from UNOH in Lima, Ohio. She started her career at a dealership and went on to build and repair P-Series superchargers and high-performance engines. Now, she co-owns a mobile repair business with her husband. Be sure to tune in as Bethany shares her twists and turns as a mother of three in this industry and a business owner. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribes for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?